Well, good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, Dream Tools, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go and give us a call? It's 499-9526. And you drop a 225 in front of that, you can reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. There you go, and we sure appreciate hearing from you. We always really enjoy our callers and try to get you some advice, help you out, and help us out as well. That's it. We can take this information and pass it on to anyone else who may have the same question. That's right, and that's the way we all kind of learn and uh, there get, you go. gain something out of this deal. <laughs> <laughs> We're going right straight to our lines with Rick. Good morning, Rick. Hey, good morning, Lewis. How are you? Doing great, sir. Good. Hey, Brian. Hope you're doing well, too. Doing very well. Thank you. Hey, listen, um, I've got just a question on something I'm, I'm faced with. I, I have an F-150. It's 1985. I got it new. Okay. had it all these years. It's been a great truck. I love it. Let my son have the truck when he got to where he could drive, and I've taught my children to take care of their stuff and maintain it. But somehow this one young man, my son, Eric, just can't seem to, to grasp that concept. <laughs> so he uh, let the water get low in the radiator. I think the, the weep hole on the water pump started passing some water. And okay. It got low, and he didn't check it. I ended up. I think he fried the engine, and I know he's, he's messed it up. It's got water in just about every cylinder. Okay. It was hydrolocked when I first got my hands on it. Wow. And I pulled the, pulled the spark plugs out, on the water out, drained the, the crankcase to get all the water out of there, too. It was about a gallon in there. Yeah. My question is, it's got the 306. It's a two-wheel drive with the four-speed. Yes, sir. It's a great setup. And I don't know if I should try to get with somebody in a garage locally and have them fix it, because this is beyond my capability to do. Yes, sir. But if you had experience in finding 300s pretty readily, I mean, I could put a used engine in it and then bypass all the diagnostics and all that. Yes, sir. The problem you're going to have, Rick, with a 300 is that the newest one you find is going to be very old, and it's probably going to have a gajillion miles on it just because, like you said, those were very, very good trucks, and people didn't send them to junkyards very often unless they had Mine's a major got problem. I've got 175000 on this one. Yeah, yeah, that's not a very hard engine to rebuild. Some of the newer stuff is pretty difficult. That's about as basic as it comes. Almost any decent machine shop can do the work on that. I mean, it's just a little inline six-cylinder with a gear drive camshaft. It's pretty simple to do. And even if it got badly overheated, it probably didn't do any irreparable damage to it. You may end up having to bore the cylinders out. You may end up having to machine the head back again and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. As long as something's not cracked or broken, like the engine block cracked or, or what have you, now, if that's the case, you could always possibly find a used engine and rebuild it. That would be oh, another option. I right. didn't even think about it. Yours is just too bad to be rebuilt, but I think I would probably have someone pull it out, go through it. It's pretty simple to do. I mean, when they take the head off, which is fairly straightforward, you can look in the cylinders and see if anything's gouged or broken or exactly the nature of the damage. The biggest thing you got to look for, being as it was hydrolocked, it could have a bit rod bent in it. rods or well, no, it was right. running. Let, let me back up. It was running when we shut it off. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then when I went to crank it, it wouldn't turn because it was full of it was Okay, full of okay. Yes, sir. All right. Yeah, there are ways to check rods. There are ways to check crankshafts. I mean, any decent machine shop, you just need to do a little detective work and find the right guy. Because everybody who's got a little grease on their fingernails thinks they can rebuild an engine, and that's just not the case. You need someone who has the experience and has the equipment to do it. And if you go to my website, and just there's several articles now on selecting a shop, just read those and apply that towards the selection of who you choose. But there are a number of folks out there, and that is a relatively easy engine to rebuild. I mean, it's almost hard to go wrong with that engine. Yeah. On that note of finding somebody good, I just one more quick note. I know y'all are busy, so I've been listening to your podcast. Um, caught up on about the last twenty-five in okay. about two weeks. I love your show, man. It's well, awesome. thank you. Well, thank you. 
but I wanted to mention that I took my truck. I've got another truck. It's an 04 F-150 mm-hmm. with the 543 valve in yes, it. Mm-hmm. And I took it with this, what I thought was a transmission shutter. And two guys diagnosed it for me. They said, oh, yeah, it's got the lockup shutter. Will you change the transmission fluid, put the additive in it, and it'll probably clear it up. No, it didn't. And I took it to somebody that finally I found that does know what he's doing. It's a 30-year veteran Ford mechanic. Mm-hmm. He diagnosed it on this machine. He said he could watch the cylinders misfire. Yeah, probably four, a bad ignition yeah, four call. Coils, four yeah. coils were bad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, those two, Rick, feel a lot alike. If you don't know what you're doing, you will misdiagnose that. And the country boy way you could do that is you can drive it while it's misfiring. Keep your foot on the gas and just reach over and touch the brake pedal. If it's a torque converter shutter, it's going to stop immediately. Yep. If it's a call, it's going to continue. So, yeah. I didn't know that. If I'd have been listening to you two weeks ago, I could have resolved that myself. That's right. That's right. Where you calling from, Rick? I'm in Leesburg, Florida, just north of Orlando. Oh, okay, good. I'll be there next weekend. (laughs) Well, come on by. We'll have some uh, crawdads. There you go. (laughs) Thanks for calling, Rick. All right. Y'all take care. All right. Bye bye. bye. 499-9526, Four nine 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 five two six. A number of you want to be part of the automotive eye. We'd love to have you. And we're going back to our lines with Herb. Good morning, Herb. Good morning. Good morning. Two questions. First one, my son bought an old Blazer. It's uh-huh. got 200,000 miles on okay. it. And the first question is, when it shifts from first to second, it's real smooth. From second to third, it's got a jerk to it unless you, if you got get down in it a little bit, you don't notice it. But if yes, you're sir. just dialing along, it's got a jerk. And then from three to four, it's smooth. And I was wondering if there's anything simple you could do to that. Probably nothing simple. Is What year model is it, Herb? 93. That's probably... Got a 350 in it. Yes, sir. 3-4 shift a little rough as well? No, that's pretty smooth. Okay. Just a 2 to 3. Yeah, because you got a 2-4 band, and you've got a 2 in reverse reaction shell that are both going to affect that. Most likely, that's going to be an internal problem, but it's not necessarily a oh, my God, we got to quit driving a truck kind of problem. Okay. You could do a pressure test on it fairly easily. I mean, that will tell you what the pressures are, and you can read what's being commanded. And if the proper pressure is being commanded from the outside, you know for sure it's on the inside. If long as he's willing to take it easy, just tell him, hey, boy, when this thing's gone, ain't no more. And yeah. when he goes to that shift, let off, let it do its thing. You may be able to drive it like that for a long, long, long ways. Okay. If he pushes it and tries to make it do it, he's going to break. You know, you're either going to break that band or you're going to break the reaction shell or something that's going to quit moving. But that being said, if he is willing to kind of nurse it along, he could probably go a long ways. Again, if you want to verify that, you could select a decent shop. And if you ask them to do a pressure test, they look a little confused, just turn around and leave. Because a lot of people don't know what that is. But that's where they just screw a gauge into the ports on the side of the transmission. They can read the pressure and then they can hook a scan tool to it, drive it, see what's being commanded, and see if the command matches the pressure. If it does not, it's possible something on the outside could cause it, but I've never seen it do it on only one gear. Something like a throttle position sensor or a map sensor can cause that, but it's not going to be on one gear. It's going to be on all the gears. If you get out on it, you don't know. Well, yeah, it's just jumping over it. When RPM goes past a certain point, it's just going to kind of jump over it. It's just a much harder, much quicker shift. But I would suspect that's going to be what it is. What condition does the fluid look like? Is it pretty dark if you look at the fluid? Honestly, don't know. He lives in Georgia. Okay, well, check the color of the fluid and tell him to smell the fluid. If the fluid smells kind of like oil and it's kind of a brown or red, then you're probably okay. If the fluid is black or smells like burned popcorn, eh, you're probably pretty close to the end. But, okay. yeah, any kind of a decent shop could do a pressure test and, and isolate that for him for sure. There's a small chance it could be something on the outside, but most likely that's going to be an internal problem. Okay. Second question is the bounces all over the road, so he uh, can't. 
won't say no name, but he bought a set of gasmatic shocks mm-hmm. in the gray and yellow box. Yes, sir. And he put them on. Probably bounces he, worse now. <laughs> <laughs> he said he gets on the bumper and jumps something down, and oh, yeah. he hits off, yeah. and it'll still bounce. For I don't know time. what's right. going on her with the shock absorbers that are on the market today, but I mean they got the worst junk I have ever seen. I, I mean, I got an article. Some of the big brand names you yeah, would think used would be, to be good big brand would names, be good. I got an article on my website, went on there this morning on this exact topic. And okay. because this is October, this is a month when they try, you got the Shocktober and all that stuff. Everybody yeah. tries to sell shocks. But, man, I tell you what, they got not only is it not needed, you're probably not putting on as good as you're taking off most yeah. cases. It was to buy three, get one free. Oh, I know. I, oh, yeah. Go read that article. You're going to laugh. Okay. Because I mean, I summarize exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> you could have wrote that article yourself. <laughs> I told him before he did it, but he did it anyway. Yep. Okie doke. All right, Herb. All right, thank you. Thanks, man. All right, sir. Bye-bye. 499-9526 a number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Hour, we would love to have you. And we've got Jack on the line. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, Lewis. Yes, sir. I thought I'd give you an update for that 91 town. What I've you got? I've all but given up. I have all but given up. <laughs> you can't do that, man. <laughs> we redid everything again. Uh-huh. Put the dryer out. Well, we took out the orifice, and the dryer, or the orifice was clogged again. Mm-hmm. We took the dryer out, mm-hmm. cut it open. It was full of sludge. Yes, if the orifice is plugged, then you still got contamination right. in that system. Uh, put another dryer on there. Mm-hmm. Took it out, and as long as I'm driving at a 35-mile-an-hour speed, mm-hmm. normal high road, right. it is working beautiful. Yeah, but see, I'm real concerned. Why did that orifice tube plug up? Because you had changed basically every part on that system. Where is this coming from? Because if you just go change the orifice again, you're just changing the filter, but something is producing this debris that's plugging that orifice. Right. Well, this is what we changed dryer. Mm-hmm. The old dryer up, and it was clogged, too. Yeah, you got something going on, man. Yeah. Just... Either there's some serious contamination still in that system, or you're getting some refrigerant that's bootleg refrigerant or something to that effect. I mean, something is definitely wrong if all that's plugging up, because that system was clean when you put it together. It's a sealed system. Nothing can get in. So something in that system is still very, very wrong. Yeah. Oh, it's got us baffled, and when (laughs) I get up the freeway... I get 20-degree air coming out of the vent. Wow. Yeah, that's too cold. See, that's going to freeze. I stop on the freeway, and Mm -hmm. here the dryer is full of ice. Yeah, it's going to be. Yeah, something is restricting the flow, and that's whatever debris you got. So you're going to have to find out what it is that's breaking down, and you're just going to have to, like we said before, go back to ground zero and look at everything. But something in that system is either incompatible. It could be an incompatibility in the oil type that's being used and the refrigerant that's being used. Mm-hmm. It could be clabbering that oil, and maybe that's what's plugging everything up. I mean, I'm not sure without seeing it, but something is definitely wrong because there's no reason in the world you should have a plugged orifice tube on a brand-new system. Yeah. Now, we, we're we thinking, all right, what would happen if I was to change the condenser, mm-hmm. change the evaporator, put a new dryer, a new orifice, take the hoses off, clean them all out, put a brand-new condenser, brand-new evaporator in, well, dryer and all. Yeah, theoretically, that's going to fix it, but again, you've already done all that. Right. Why did it plug up again? I didn't repair or replace the condenser yeah. or the evaporator. Well, the evaporator's not such a problem, Jack, because it's got pretty big tubes in You can effectively flush a evaporator out, but you cannot flush a condenser out. Okay, so, so if- I would definitely change the condenser. It may be full of debris. See, from the old original problem, it could have had a bunch of debris out of the original filter dryer may have ruptured, plugged up the condenser, and then it's just going through plugging the orifice tube, which is making it freeze up. 
Okay, and cleaning it out doesn't mean anything. No, you cannot not clean a condenser. a condenser. It's just a tube that's, I don't know how many hundred feet long. It's a little tiny tube. You're not ever going to flush that out. Well, we, we, we I, don't I mean, ever, it's easy enough to replace the condenser. Yeah, we don't yeah, ever even right try that. But you're going to have to, like you said, take everything out, flush through every bit of it, get all that contaminant completely out. Mm-hmm. And also, you got to be very, very careful what you're using the flush with because if you're putting some kind of chemical in that could be causing all this problem. Okay. So we only flush with liquid refrigerant. Okay. So you got to have somebody who really knows what they're doing. They have machines that use liquid refrigerant that will flush through. And when you go to blow it out, you can't blow compressed air because that's full of moisture. I mean, you got to blow it out with nitrogen. Okay, so, well, we've got so, a guy to where I live. Mm-hmm. They said they work on R12s and everything. So. Yeah, yeah. If you get all the contaminants out, put a new condenser on it, you know, make sure everything's good, new filter dryer, new orifice tube, you're going to solve that problem. All right, is but, that going to make the compressors cycle? Well, if the compressor is not cycling, I just think that that's another issue. Did you follow those guidelines I sent you as far as checking it? Yes, we did. If you, unpl- if you unplug the cycle switch, it quits running? Yes, sir. And it, there's nothing else because if the cycle switch, the pressure drops low enough to freeze the unit, the cycle switch has got to click it off. Well, the numbers came up and it was like 25 uh, where it's supposed to come. The, the compressor just still doesn't shut off. Yeah, you got something else going yeah. on there, man. Even when the numbers come down. Yeah, if the, if the numbers are dropping down in the 20 range somewhere, it ought to be cycling that compressor because that switch, I think, is going to cut out at around 27 or 28 PSI. Right. And it should shut that compressor down. And it's not doing it. Yeah, you got something. It's either picking up a bleed somewhere or the relay is sticking and it's keeping power going to the compressor even though the cycle switch is cycling it. Yeah. You're just going to have to find out why it's not cycling. That is a separate issue to the restriction because even if it weren't cycling, and you did not have a restricted system, I don't think it would freeze up immediately. It might eventually freeze up. Yeah. But I think the restriction is causing you freeze up. It's dropping the pressure before it should, so it's starting to freeze, and then when it goes to the core, it's freezing. But it should definitely be cycling. You're going to need to figure that out. That's got to be an electrical issue somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, we even took the pressure switch off and checked it with our compressor, mm-hmm. you know, air compressor. Yes, sir. You can hear it when it reaches a certain thing. It, it, you can hear it click uh, open and close. Yeah, and see, if, if the switch is cycling, and you can check that with a voltmeter very easily, and it's still running the compressor, you either got a stuck relay or somebody's bypassed something somewhere. Where's the relay? In the relay center, fuse relay center. That switch does not control the compressor. It controls the relay. The relay controls the compressor. There's a relay in the fuse box? Absolutely. Well, now, that's something new again. Now, I wrote you down that last email. <laughs> Grasshopper, you're not listening to me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, there, there's a relay emails. that operates the compressor, a compressor clutch relay. I'll go back into the emails and check them yeah, out. Yeah, go check that yeah. and see. Yeah, you could have a stuck relay. See, the cycle switch could be cycling, but the relay is not breaking, so it's going to keep putting power to the clutch. <laughs> <laughs> you owe me a six pack, Jack. All right. <laughs> in touch with you. All right, man. Thank you. For your time. Mm, bye bye. All right, we're going to take another quick little break and we'll be right back with more. Bill, hold on. You'll be straight up after this break. My way, take the highway. That's the best. Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a few things that chap my hide lately $150 jeans, vanity licenses that are too complex to read, billboards that say drive carefully. Think about that one. Child beauty pageants. I mean, let's go ahead and set these kids up for failure before they get to kindergarten. And how about when you try to be nice and let someone out in traffic and they won't go because they're talking on the cell phone? Here's a message for you. 
Put the phone down! Another thing that chaps my hide is repair shops that use Swaptronics to fix your car. That's where they can't pinpoint the exact problem, so they just change parts, hoping to fix something, which means your repair bill could double. The experts at Agco determine the exact problem, then fix it right the first time, at the price quoted, which does not chap my hide. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. You just joined us the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldezan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, Dream Tools are trying to answer any automotive question you might have. Why don't you go give us a call? We're glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. And we're going back to our phone lines with Bill. Good morning, Bill. Hey, how y'all are? Doing we're great, doing man. great. I got a 2003 Kia Sedona van, minivan, V6, 24 valve. Okay. 309,000 miles on it. Drives and looks like a brand new vehicle. Mm-hmm. My problem is I got I need an alternator. I got the alternator disconnected, which was pretty simple. It's only three bolts, and I dropped the belt. Mm-hmm. But my problem is I can't get the sucker out of the frame. How you get? How you? I can't. Won't drop. Won't come out below it. Yeah, some of them are pretty tight. I'm not yeah. familiar with that exact vehicle, Bill, so I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. But a lot of times you're going to have to take and loosen some of the motor mounts and actually either move the motor up or loosen the engine cradle and drop the engine cradle down. I know on the Cadillac that's the only way you can get the alternator out of the vehicle is to take the engine cradle loose and actually support the engine, drop the engine cradle down, mm-hmm. and you, then you got enough room yeah, to what, get it what's out. What's it actually hitting on, Bill? It's hitting on everything. It's in a real, real tight. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times, it's not unusual. I mean, it's not no. like the old days where you just took an alternator off and took it off. I mean, right. I've seen where you got to take drive axles out. you got to take exhaust pipes off. you got to do a lot of stuff to get them out. And it's just a tight, tight little car. I mean, just the way they're built. But that's not at all unusual. I'm not familiar with that vehicle enough to be able to tell you off the top of my head. If you want to send me an email, I'll look it up and service that and see if I can tell you. But you may have to take something else off. Like I said, many times... We'll take the torque straps off the motor and put like a strap on there and kind of pull the motor up, lean it one way or the other, or drop the exhaust or drop a drive axle or, like I said, loosen the engine cradle. I mean, that's not at all unusual these days to have to do to get an alternator out. You're hitting on a good point there. I was thinking of that also, taking the motor mount loose. Mm-hmm. And, it, and let me ask you something. Can, can I can I get a, a hydraulic jack and jack the engine up from underneath once I disconnect the... Um, yes, sir. Just get just like got, a block of wood, like right. a piece of 2x6 or something. Put right. it on. You don't want to break anything. You don't overload right. any single part. But, yeah, if you put a block of wood to cushion it, and don't try to jack it out of the car, but just jack it up a little bit, you'll see when it starts to strain. Yeah, but you can just support the weight of it. Yeah, and angle it and try to get it out like that. That's, that was my next move, but I wanted to, to call you guys and oh, yeah. see what y'all were Oh yeah, that's and, uh, that's not at all you know, unusual to have to do something like that. Yeah, well that's what that's my next move. <laughs> and if that don't work, I'm taking it to a shop. There you go. There you go. <laughs> you know, thanks guys. All right, Bill. Thanks for right, calling, man. Bye bye. Yep. Four nine 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 five two six number. If you want to be part of the automotive, I we'd love to have you. That is one of those things. I have been guilty of that myself when I used to work in the shop. I would look at a component, and I didn't want to take anything else off. Right. I just want, and I would fight and fight and fight and fight. And then sooner or later, I would just th- give in. And yeah, I'd give in. I'd go ahead and take this other part off. I said, you know, it took me like five minutes to get this part off. It right. scratched my head for three days. <laughs> <laughs> I see it every day. Oh, yeah, and it's just human nature. You don't want to go start taking other things apart. But many, many times, particularly on newer cars, they are – 
really, really crammed in there because they have so many criteria they're trying to meet. Right. They're trying to build a small package and trying to get everything in the best they can. Sometimes they're trying to insulate it from heat or from rain or whatever. And, and not only that, but it makes it easier for them when they're assembling the vehicle. If everything is, is packaged up into one small deal, they can just put it in the application, yeah. put it up, and they're done. Well, they see, don't have to run this when, and run that. And When they build a car at the factory, that engine transmission and all that is a power plant assembly sitting on an engine cradle. Sure. The body comes in from overhead, and that just goes up from the bottom. Right. Whoop, they stick it in there, run the bolts in, and it's done. It's but it done. all goes in at one time. So there are many, many cases where you actually have to remove engines to do stuff i know we're doing a set of head gaskets on a cadillac at the shop uh-huh and step one's remove the engine yeah you cannot get the head gaskets off with the engine in the car right it's the just engine from it's the car. packed in there that tight right we did timing chains on a gm car not too long ago again same thing first step remove the engine from the car and the great thing about it is you've got a lift there that's made to lift the vehicle right you just reposition it so it lifts the body mm-hmm. you unbolt the engine cradle and set it on stands and then lift the body off of it yeah. and everything's sitting and right there right there where you can work on right it. you can do that a, makes it easy do a much better job too because you can get right to everything right. so hey we're going back to our phone lines earl good morning earl yes, good sir. morning uh, yeah i just had a quick question about gas my neighbor was saying the other day he says i only use premium gas in my vehicles, lawnmowers, and everything else, uh-huh. and he said, I don't use the ethanol. Uh-huh. I try to get gas without ethanol in it, and I was wondering really what difference that makes in a vehicle well, now. Well, yeah, those are different issues different. completely, Earl. Ethanol and premium fuel is two totally separate things. A car that requires higher octane requires higher octane. A car that does not require higher octane will not benefit from it. Octane simply slows down the burn rate of the fuel so that it does not spontaneously combust under compression and start pre-igniting and detonating. But if the engine is not designed to take use of that, it's not going to benefit. And a premium fuel is not necessarily better than a regular fuel in a brand name. All that being said, there is a difference between brand name and no-name fuels. The brand name fuels are going to have more additives in them. Sometimes they were transported more clean and all that sort of thing. So I'm a big, big proponent of using a brand name fuel, but I don't necessarily see a benefit to using, say, 93 octane in a car that calls for 87. Brand name, you mean like a, a brand name versus a convenience store? Yeah, I do not use no convenience. Yeah, I don't use convenience store fuels. I do not use the no name brands. I have seen a lot, a lot of problem with that. And if you could hold on, Earl, I got to take a break right now, but I'll be right back to you straight after this break. Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a few things I'm tired of. I'm tired of reality TV. There's nothing real about it. I'm tired of all those housewives, the Kardashians, the brides, the bachelors, celebrities in rehab. Here's an idea. Let's ship all the Flavor Flaves, Snookies, and Honey Boo Boos off to a deserted island and watch America's average IQ jump up a few points. I'm also really tired of automotive repair shops that promote an $89.95 brake job and then hit the folks for $500 and give them a lousy job. Listen to me. And take your vehicle to Agco, where you get quality work performed right the first time for a reasonable price. And that, my friends, is a reality. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. Agco, it's the place to go. This has a lot behind it, but I can't keep it. 
Hey, welcome back. If you just join us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Altazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, Tune Tools will try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go and give us a call? It's 499-9526. I think we lost Earl during the break, but the point I was trying to make is that if a vehicle specifies premium fuel, then premium fuel has to be used because not using it will damage the engine. If it does not specify premium fuel, let's say your car calls for 87 octane, sometimes by using 91 octane, the vehicle is able to advance the timing slightly more, which may give you better fuel mileage. It's one of those things you just have to try. You have to do the math and see if your cost per mile is lower with the higher octane fuel. If it is, then great, go ahead and use that because that's the overall lowest cost. If it is not, then there's no real benefit to using it. If the car can't utilize it, then it just can't utilize it. There's no real benefit to paying more for it. It's not a better fuel as long as it's all quality fuel we're speaking of. The name brand fuels, there's the Exxons, the Shells, the British Petroleums, normally are going to have the better additives in them, more additives in them, more detergents in them, as opposed to the private label fuels and department store fuels, may have just a federally mandated minimum of detergents and other additives in it. So... Every time I've ever seen a vehicle come in with a major fuel system problem, they always tell me that they're using a private label fuel. I've never seen that happen with one of the majors. So just something I'm real sold on. I use nothing but the major brand names, and I've always had real good luck with that. And we're going back to our phone lines with David. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning, Lewis. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. I've got an air conditioning problem as well. Sure. With your last caller. Okay. Got a little 2000 Hondo Accord, uh-huh. and I changed the expansion valve and the dryer on it yesterday. Mm-hmm. Well, inside that expansion valve, it was plugged up with some little bitty tiny balls about the size of number seven and a half bird shot. Yes, sir. I'll tell you exactly what that is, too, because that's a very common problem. That's the filter dryer has ruptured on it. Pretty common problem on that car, David. You're going to have to change the condenser to get that out of it. Yeah, filter okay, dryer is well. part of the condenser on it. And yes, the condenser is going to be all full of it, too. So and you need to do that pretty darn quick because what will happen those little BBs will plug up that expansion valve, and it quits right. cooling. But more to the point, it blocks the refrigerant flow, which blocks the lubricant flow, which will fry a compressor in no time flat. Right, I follow you so there. So you'll end up eating a compressor real, real quick. That was a common issue. If you take the condenser out, you're going to see a little tank on the side of it, and you're going to unscrew the top and empty it out, and you'll see them little beads all over the place. I'll be darned. Yeah, it's going to be a ruptured filter dryer. The devil to get all that out of you almost need to have that thing professionally flushed out with liquid refrigerant to get it out because it's going to be all up inside the evaporator. It's going to be all up in the lines, and it'll just keep coming back. Okay. You're just going to keep having the problem over and over and over again. I mean, if you're real handy, you could try, remove the compressor, remove the expansion valve again, replace the compressor, flush through all those lines with a good air conditioning flush product. Liquid refrigerant does better, but you got to have a special machine for that. And then yes, you got to be very careful because you start blowing compressed air in there, you're blowing a lot of moisture in the system that you're not going to be able to get out. Not even so, if you evacuate it with a vacuum pump. Yeah, no, you just, it, the you moisture really, is going to get in, and you could evacuate it, but it would take about three days to get that moisture out. You really oh, need well. a if you if that's all you got, you really need a dry air. Almost like a uh, body shop painter's. Yeah, we use the nitrogen. air that the painter uses yeah. to we, spray with. We that's buy, got to be dry. And you may be able to rent a nitrogen bottle somewhere and use that because that's going to be perfectly dry. You right. can blow it out with nitrogen. But you see, the way vacuuming works is that when you draw a vacuum, you're pulling it down to around 29 inches, which lowers the ball point of the water down below the ambient temperature. So the water in the system starts to boil. But you figure water that's inside that evaporator core, how long is that going to take to completely boil out and get sucked completely out of that system? Like, say, you'd have to vacuum right. it by three days. Oh, 
gun. To get it out of there. And I've seen people put a vacuum up on there for 15 minutes think they're doing something. Yeah. Man, you, you ain't doing but fooling yourself. Yeah. I did it for about an hour. Yeah. Yeah, that, that just to... barely got it down to the ballpoint, and it didn't have near enough time to get it out of it. But, well, yeah. I wanted I... to tell you also, when I went to try to recharge it, I never could get the compressor to come back on. Hmm. So I got to fooling with it. I checked the relay. Well, the relay seems like it's okay, but mm-hmm. there's a switch that goes on top of that dryer. When I unplugged that switch, I put a test light in there to see if I was getting fire. Mm-hmm. The compressor cut on. Yeah, it may just be there wasn't enough pressure in. So sometimes you have to bypass that switch to get pressure to the compressor to get it to run to charge it. Right. If, okay, if it's no, fact, see, whenever we charge them, we've got a charging cylinder which pressurizes the refrigerant and pumps it in. So mm-hmm. by the time I turn it on, it's already got pressure in it. But if you got no pressure in the system, that switch is going to shut it down. I see. So it's but not going to run. But since I've got all this other, those little BBs in there, I'm going to have oh, to. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's got to come out all over. You're going to fry a compressor, and you're also going to take out that new expansion valve again, I mean, in no right. time flat. So we're going to need to definitely change the condenser. And you Condenser's to got to be changed. Compressor too. needs to come out. You need to empty all the oil and stuff out of it, make sure it's all good and clean. Yes, uh, you may even end up having to replace that compressor, depending on if it the, – see, the problem with air conditioning, David, let's say the compressor is now damaged because it ran without oil. So you uh-huh. go put a new condenser on there, you put all this new stuff on there, you crank it up, and the compressor lets go. Well, you just took all those brand-new parts out again. So you get into a vicious cycle where you're just throwing money at this thing it just you only get one shot at fixing an air conditioner right. It has to be spotless. I mean, it has to be almost sterile right. inside. Right. So if I if I were to take it now, I've got the new expansion valve. Well, unless it's unplugged up again. <laughs> yeah. well, I didn't get it running very much. That only. Uh, I mean, that doesn't take but seconds. But yeah, I mean, you'd almost do yourself a favor, I think, to go ahead and replace the compressor unless you have a way of verifying that it right, is perfectly clean. Condenser, you got it off anyway, you know? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It, and the compressor's not bad to pull off of that. that not too bad. Mm-mm. But, yeah. yeah, when you take the condenser off, look on the side. You can see a little aluminum tank, and it, usually the top will come off. Take that top off and empty it out, and you can, you can find out where those little BBs are coming from. Well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> Told me something today because I'm I'm not an expert on these things. Oh, I don't yeah. fool with them that often. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm halfway handy. But yeah, I tell you, uh, John, go to our website and just type in the keyword air conditioning, and there is a four part article in that will teach you more than you ever want to know about air conditioning. Read that Good. article before you go back to this project. Yeah. Yes, sir, I sure will. Well, it, thank, it's, thank you it's so four, much. A four part article. All right. Uh, okay, Louis. Thank, thank, thank you, very you much, man. Bye bye. Four nine 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 five two six number. If you want to be part of the automotive hour, we'd love to have you. And we've got John online. Good morning, John. Good morning, Lewis. Yes, sir. I have a 2005 Lincoln Town car I bought okay. used. Uh-huh. I wanted to know about servicing the transmission. Everything runs fine, mm-hmm. but as far as changing out transmission fluid, yes, filter, sir. what do they do on those now? John, that one really, Ford recommends every 30,000 miles on that transmission just because they've had a good deal of trouble with what they call torque converter shutter on those. Okay. Not really difficult. What you do... When we service transmission, first we drive the vehicle, make sure it's shifting properly and all that. Next thing, we put it up, inspect for any leaks, because if you're going to have a leak, you want to do that while you're servicing it, because that makes it much easier to repair. If there's no external leaks, next thing you would do is drop the pan and drain all the fluid out of it. Go ahead and pull the filter off. Take the old filter and break or cut it open and look inside of that filter and see if there's any metal or any kind of little particles or anything in there. If it's good and clean... Then go ahead and take a torque wrench and retorque all the valve body bolts. Then you just replace the filter, put the pan back on it, fill it back up, go drive it, come back, check it again, and inspect for leaks, and that's about it. One thing you want to do before you tear that filter open, 
is take your new filter and match it and make sure they're the same one. Mm-hmm. Because once you've busted that filter all up, it's kind of hard to match it to the new one. That's right. That's and right. I think that trans had several different pans for it, and the filters came in different lengths. They use that transmission in a number of different right. vehicles. And so if you go to a parts store and buy a filter, it could be for a 4R70W, but it may not be for your 4R70W. The pan depths are different, so the filters are different. So okay. you want to make sure that you are getting the right filter. But go on the website and just type in the word proper service and it's going to bring up a big old article with pictures and everything else and then it branches to several other articles i probably got a half a dozen articles on the website on just that one topic wow okay well thank you very much all right john all right sir thank you bye-bye 499-9526 number if you want to be part of the automotive i we'd love to have you (laughs) (laughs) transmission service is not a difficult thing but it is kind of like air conditioning service or really any kind of other automotive service Uh it has to be done right and the implications of doing it wrong are going to be very 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 significant sure expensive like we talked about with the air conditioner i've seen this a million times where let's say the compressor goes out so what happens whoever is fixing it goes in and they put a new compressor on or maybe they put a compressor or dryer on but they don't realize that this metal has gotten all inside the evaporator course gotten inside the condenser it's everywhere so now the metal goes through when that takes out the new compressor they just put on right now we have the metal of two compressors in this system so it's twice as bad a problem as you had originally and being a novice you may go out and throw another compressor on it. well now you got three times the problem exactly so it gets worse and worse and worse and worse now, if you go in and you say, well, the expansion valve is plugged up. Well, it's plugged up, but why is it plugged up? So you put a new expansion valve. Well, within 30 seconds, it's plugged up again. Sure. So now you're going back through that again, and eventually you figure out, well, the condenser's plugged up. So you go get a new condenser. We put it on with all these other bad parts. Well, now it's taken out again. In 30 seconds, it's ruined again. Right. So you just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And the only way to fix that is to start out, number one, with a proper diagnosis so you know what you're going up against. Do the entire job the first time correctly. Sure. Get every bit of debris out of it. Find out what caused the problem originally, and then change all the necessary parts because nobody wants to throw money away. But the definition of throwing money away is spending $1,000 on something that is 100% wasted. It doesn't last an hour, whereas you could have spent $1,300 and fixed it. Because exactly. now you're spending another thousand and another thousand and another thousand, and you never have air conditioning again. <laughs> <laughs> and each time it gets a whole, whole lot worse. So the time to do it right it's is the first time. The first time, yeah. That is it. Well, like the old man always says, sometimes the cheapest way out is the most expensive way in. There you go. <laughs> and that seems to hold true more yes, times it does. than not. <laughs> We're going back to our phone line. Is it Ramia? Yes. Yes, sir. Hey, uh, my wife and I was looking at buying a new car. Mm hmm. And quite frankly, what we've determined is every new car is a computerized piece of junk. Pretty much. And you yep. don't want to own, own it more than four or five years after the warranty runs out. Well, I would agree with that, okay, if that long. So my question is, if we were, we were to buy a used vehicle, mm-hmm. do you have any recommendations on one that's not too old, yep. but that we can actually fix ourselves, work on ourselves, buy parts for ourselves, Yeah, and you know where I'm coming from. Yes, sir. Well, Ramia, most of the vehicles built prior to 2006 were pretty decent. Cars went through a number of cycles, and back during the 70s and 80s, they built some pretty lame cars just because they really didn't have any competition, and they got to where you'd buy the car and you slam the door and the handle would come off your hand and all that kind of stuff. 
Well, it got better and better and better because when the Japanese started building cars in the U.S., they really shook the automakers up. They found out we could build a good car. So I guess all through the 90s and the early 2000s, they built better, 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 better cars. Somewhere around the mid-2000s, they were probably building the best car they ever built. Yeah, but just following me, mm-hmm. if you got a cup holder and a heated cup holder mm-hmm. and it don't work right, yeah. you throw a code, your microfarads on, on your computer stuff don't yeah, work right. that's right. And you totally screwed. That's right. And you got, now you're really in trouble. So, yeah, yeah I would try right. to find yeah, something, yeah. you know, around 06 or so. And I don't get too concerned about the mileage. You know, something with 80,000, 90,000 miles, is not, as long as it's been halfway taken care of, hey, is good. What, where I'm from is I put a new motor in it. Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, well, that's why I'm you still know, driving a 2005 Buick. I'm wondering, is it 87? Or, I mean, where, you go where back you that far, at, and, and frankly, we're looking at pickup trucks. Yeah, when you go back that far, you're going to have a vehicle that doesn't have a lot of creature comforts in it, and it's just going to be so old that it's going to need so much work that you're basically into a total restoration, which hey, is going to cost I, you a lot of money. Hey, if it costs me $10,000, that's yeah. less money than it costs me to change a fog light yeah, but in front of one of these new vehicles. but you're way better off to start out with something that's a little bit newer. And like I said, anything around 2000 four five six up in okay. there you can be okay and particularly something even the gm products and the ford products if you're gonna buy a ford i'd go with a six-cylinder you know that right. would be much better than the v8s were on chevrolet i like okay. most of them before 2006 so you with me on this yes sir okay so i drive on a 2002 chevy pickup and a 2005 buick and i'm not thinking of getting rid of either one of them anytime in the foreseeable future okay all right, so you're saying get, like, just around 2000. Somewhere in there. Anywhere in the 2000s would be good. Okay, thanks for your help. Okay, man, thank you. 499-9526 number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Hour, we're going to take one last quick little break. We'll be right back with more. Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a little advice for those who overshare on Facebook. I know, I friended you, but please... I don't need to know what you had for breakfast or where you just scratched. I don't need to know your Uncle Dominic's political beliefs or that your mom painted her kitchen the color called Frosted Fern. And for the last time, we don't care that your cat, Doogie Meowser, really looks like Neil Patrick Harris. Some more advice? In this tight economy, why waste money on a new vehicle? Stick with your older model and take good care of it to make sure it lasts. Come to Agco for quality maintenance and repair, and we'll save you from throwing money away on a big note so you can pay other bills or save for something else. In Facebook terms, that's something you'll definitely like. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Alvazan, president of Agco Automotive. We've got Mr. Brian Terry, our lead tech, right here in the co-pilot seat. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go ahead and give us a call? we still got a few minutes. And That's give it. Some advice. You know, we got an email in the other day I thought was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Gentleman in Quebec, Canada. Okay. Mr. Parr, I believe his name is. Okay. He has a Kia, new, fairly new vehicle. Like, uh-huh. I think he said he had 21,000 miles on it. Okay. And it was a real nice day, and they were driving around in it. They pulled up in the yard and left the windows down. Okay. Well, that night, they went out and rolled the windows up, as any responsible person, responsible would, do. person <laughs> would do. Next morning, they get up, go out there, and they open the door, and a squirrel comes flying out. Oh, Lord. Oh, yeah. He did 
$10,000 worth of damage to the interior of that car trying to get out. Wow. Eight holes in the seats, <laughs> tore wires out from under the dash, almost totaled the vehicle. Oh, yeah, and I'm not laughing at him. I'm laughing with him. Oh, but, I know. Oh, I tell you what. That, whoa. One, one squirrel. Yeah, you just you don't think about it. It's a pretty day. You air the car out a little yeah. bit or we're coming back and you leave the window down. That little squirrel jumps up in there because right. it's nice and warm and safe. And then just, when you roll up the window, you lock him in. That's it, and he wants out. Woo. <laughs> Man. said he did some damage. <laughs> Just ate the inside of the car. Oh, yeah. Holes in the seats, through the interior compartment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tore wires out from under the dash, chewed holes in the door panels trying to get out. Oh, man. Oh, that little joker wanted out bad. Yeah. Well, you know, the reason they call him a rodent, the word <laughs> rodent means rodare, which uh-huh. means to gnaw. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> it is. I tell you what, they can do some damage to a vehicle. Well, you know, we see them all the time where someone will tow a vehicle in, it doesn't run. They say, well, it was running the night before, and now it won't start, or maybe the check engine light's on, and you raise the hood, and you will see wires just chewed to pieces the, the biggest thing is when you open the hood and you look at the engine cover and it's got little footprints yeah, all over tiny it. you know a rodent's been in it that's yeah. it i've seen them make a nest in a cabin filter before oh yeah absolutely that's their favorite spot yeah they like to get down in there because it's, it's dark and it's safe and they just like it and they'll come back again night after night after night sure and while they're there they're going to chew because oh yeah they i wrote an article on that on the website and it's all about why rodents chew wires and they're not chewing for food. They're chewing because they have to chew. They have to wear their teeth down. If they don't, they grow through their jaw and Correct. kill them. So they're constantly, constantly, constantly chewing. And they seem to like wiring harnesses. And they will chew things right that through nature. that. And I remember the hardness of a rodent's teeth was like a four on this scale of, I don't remember what it was, but I think copper has a rating of three. Uh-huh. Cast iron has a rating of four. Wow. And tool steel... Hardened tool steel has a rating of five, and their teeth are four. <laughs> really? So they can chew through cast iron, oh, yeah. basically. They I wanted mean, to. Yeah, they can just go right through stuff. I remember we had a 370Z Nissan that came in that uh-huh. wouldn't start, and I could see little droppings under the hood and no pulse to the injectors at all. So we ended up pulling the intake manifold off, and they chewed through the injector harness. Right, I remember that. Yeah, and that's about a one-inch diameter harness of wires, and they went through it like a chainsaw, boy. <laughs> oh, yeah, and, and what, four or five hours to, to do the job? Oh, I don't know how long it took them, but they sure did a job on and it. And you know the bad thing about it? Mm-hmm. A week later, it was back. That's right. Wouldn't run again. That's right. And Guess chew, what? Chew some more off. <laughs> that's it. They came back and chewed some more well, out. Once they get in, they kind of get used to that. Sure. And they say, hey, this, this, this is a good spot. Yeah, kind of like thieves, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Rob, rob one place, they might go back again. If you, I tell you don't what, change we, something. we opened a hood on a uh, Camry the other day that it got towed in and been sitting a long time. Right. A possum had actually built a nest up by, right. by the battery. Yep. He was still there. He was there. <laughs> <laughs> kind of scary thought when you raise that hood and see a, a I'm po- telling you. possum staring back at you. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who it scared more, him or Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I think it shook Chris up pretty good. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. But, yeah, all sorts of rodents, not just mice, yeah. but, of course, mice, rats, squirrels, all sorts of little rodents who are going to find places to hide sure. from predators. And cars are just a good place, particularly if you park your car next to a food source. A lot of folks have pets outside, and they'll put a bowl of food out for the dog or right. the cat. And they don't think about it, but their dog and cat comes in at night or goes off somewhere at night. Well, those little rodents come in. They're attracted to the food. Sure, raccoons, possums, anything like that. Once they get a full belly, they're looking for a good place to bed down. 
and that something car that, is real inviting, especially cars that sit a lot. Right, something that doesn't move. Mm-hmm. Now, if you live in an apartment complex, a mistake that a lot of people will make as well is they'll park kind of close to a dumpster. Uh-huh. And dumpsters are generally going to have food products in there, so that's another real, real big mistake. Don't ever park close to the dumpster. Right. Park way away in the middle of the lot with a lot of concrete around where they're not of, as not as apt to draw out that far looking for somewhere to to bed down. Yeah, they're gonna if you got a lot of tall grass or you got a lot of bushes right around your driveway, they're gonna hide in those and then they're gonna come out and jump off into the car. Right. And of course, you can do a number of things to try to keep them out. Some are more effective than other. Mothballs work okay, but you have to keep replenishing them because they dissolve and go into the air and Correct. they go away. So you have to keep putting those back. But they don't like the smell of mothballs, so that's one thing. Of course, bringing in a pet of some sort, like a cat, if you have a... Right, something to keep him kind of chased away. Find your old feral cat. <laughs> <laughs> feed him instead, yeah, huh? Don't feed him too much, though. <laughs> that's it. Got to keep him hungry. <laughs> that's right. Feed him just enough. <laughs> and I can see now. Peter oh, yeah, I know it. I was thinking the same thing. Phone's going to be lit up next week. That's right. Hey, we want to tell everybody how much we appreciate them listening this week and every week on the Automotive Hour. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for also listening this week. And tell your friends and go to iTunes and give us a rating. Move us up in the rankings there. That's right. Also, Stitcher is a fine, fine place. They do a real good job of putting the show out. So go to Stitcher and listen to us. You can also listen live on iHeartRadio. The call letters for the station are WJBO. And if you want to go to iHeart, you can listen to us live. Hey, preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend. Thank mm-hmm. you.